This evening, friends, with God's help, we're going to be reflecting on this wonderful chapter in the fourth gospel, uh, the 20th chapter of the gospel according to John, the resurrection chapter. And just unto a very simple title this evening, Reason or Faith. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 25, John chapter 20 and verse 25. And the words of Thomas, the other disciples, said to him, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This was the second appearance uh, to the uh, disciples. the first appearance being on Easter Day evening. We'll just look at that back at verse 19. This was the appearance to them as a group of people. Uh, the 12 as they were still referred to, but that could have included several other people also, probably in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. So here we are on Easter Day evening, verse 19. Then the same day at evening being the first day of the week, When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think we understand that Thomas, who was for some inexplicable reason absent at that first appearance on Easter Day evening, Uh, We understand that perhaps Thomas joined that company later that Easter day evening following Christ's appearance. But now we read at verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And so Thomas forever will be known as Doubting Thomas, which is perhaps a little unfair to him, as I will try to set before you shortly. But Thomas, you see, over those eight days, from one first day of the week to the next first day of the week, this disciple missed out on the peace and the blessing that the other disciples received. And I didn't intend saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway, that it's so important, isn't it, friends, that we do not forsake the assembling together of the saints to worship him and to hear his word and to fellowship together. And because Thomas did forsake the assembling of that gathering on Easter Day evening, he missed out on so much. He missed out on blessing and he missed out undoubtedly on peace until the following Sunday evening. Thomas does not mention too much in the uh, narratives in the four Gospels. Uh, His name does appear in every list of the twelve disciples when Christ called those men to himself uh, to that special apostolic commissioning and work set for them. But Thomas does make an appearance in the Gospel of John. I'm just looking back to John chapter 11. I'm sure you're familiar with this chapter also. This is about Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. 
And you recall that uh, Lazarus was sick, he was very poorly. Uh, Christ says at verse 4, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But then we read there at verse 6, so when he heard that he was sick, sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Verse 16, then Thomas, who is called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So there we find Thomas uh, acting as a spokesman for the twelve, and really Thomas here is demonstrating his devotion to Christ because he's really saying, Jesus, if you are going to return to Judea, that's a dangerous place for you at this time. And we, as your followers, as your friends, we are going to come with you. We are going to accompany you. And then we look on to John chapter 14. Some very well-known words here. Christ is speaking about his father's house and making promises that if he goes away, he will come again and that he will prepare a place for his people, verse 5. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Again, this man was exhibiting his obvious devotion to the Savior But he was asking a question which no doubt was on the lips of the others of the twelve. And his question was, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And so therefore the question was quite simply, tell us the way where you are going, Lord. And we find this answer, which of course becomes one of the great I am sayings. uh, The seven great I am sayings in the fourth gospel when Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The Apostle John, then, it would seem to be that he was full of good intentions, but he was rather sluggish or backward on action. Good with intentions, slow to act, maybe. And Reading between the lines, and that's what we must do with Thomas, so I hope this is fair to him. Reading between the lines, he seems to be the kind of character who was always thinking the worst of situations. Rather a gloomy kind of character. So on the one hand, he was devoted to his master, but on the other hand, he was so often despondent as he followed after his master. Perhaps the kind of person who was always expecting evil and was rather surprised when something really good happened. Makes me think of John Bunyan's classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, and you may be familiar with this. And we read there uh, in that uh, story, we read of Mr. Despondency and Miss Much Afraid, Mr. Despondency's daughter. And they were locked up in Doubting Castle. And the, key, the man who had the key to Doubting Castle was Giant Despair. And so Mr. Despondency and Much Afraid, we read, were honest people. And they were believers in Christ. 
And yet they were prisoners. Because they were prisoners in Doubting Castle. And it was only when they were rescued by Great Heart that they managed to escape. So we read at verse 25 the words of Thomas. We have the words of the disciples, I beg your pardon. We have seen the Lord. The words of Thomas, unless I see, I will not believe. Unless I see, I will not believe. This was the sixth appearance of the risen Christ on that Easter day. You may remember Christ had appeared to a group of women who came to the tomb. Uh, He's also appeared to Mary Magdalene. He'd appeared to Peter. He had walked with the two on the road to Emmaus, a journey of about seven miles from Jerusalem. He'd appeared on Easter Day evening to what are described as the Twelve, and he makes a further appearance this time uh, for the sake, really, of Thomas, the disciple. So Thomas says, unless I see, I will not believe. Well, that's rather strange, coming from the lips of a disciple of Christ, because Thomas was a believer in Christ, quite patently and quite obviously, and he'd been following after Christ for three years or more. He had been, as with the others, he had sat many times under the preaching word of Christ. He'd also been there when Christ had been teaching on the Sermon on the Mount and in other places and on other occasions. He'd witnessed those uh, miracles, nature miracles and healing miracles also. He was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd witnessed those seven sign miracles which appear in the fourth gospel, including the one in John chapter 9 of the healing of the man who was born blind. And so Thomas was definitely a believer in Christ, but he says here, unless I see, I will not believe. Now, Christ had been introducing the idea of his soon departure to his friends uh, for some time before Calvary. And i just give you one example here. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, we read at verse 31 that Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And on a number of occasions, Christ spoke those words to the twelve. He was seeking to prepare them for what lay ahead, i.e. his death, but also his triumphant resurrection from the dead. So we read in our chapter, in John chapter 20 there, we read at verse 9, referring here to the two, to Peter and John, but also, of course, to the other disciples, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that means they did not understand the scripture, that the Christ must rise again from the dead. In those days, in the first century Judaism, there was quite a lot of interest and belief in spirits and in ghosts. Uh, 
And perhaps Thomas was thinking to himself when he was told by the others, we have seen the Lord. Perhaps he thought to himself quietly in his own heart, perhaps they've seen a ghost. Perhaps they've seen a spirit. And so he refused to accept the testimony of the ten. His friends, his co-colleagues in the work of Christ, he disbelieved their testimony. And also, he wasn't thinking clearly uh, because he'd forgotten about the Old Testament testimony. In many places in the Old Testament scriptures, there was mentioned that Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, would come and that he would suffer and die and that he would rise again from the dead. For example, Psalm 16 verse 10. For you will not leave my soul, my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Sheol is the, the abode of the dead. And there is one example. Go to the end of Isaiah chapter 53 and you find yet another hint of the resurrection of the suffering servant. Thomas then was, in my view, undoubtedly on the road to heaven. He was a man who had faith and it was a sincere faith. He was a man who had been affected by the grace of God that he could testify that he was saved by God's grace alone. But he had doubts and fears. And in a sense, this prevented the man from really thoroughly enjoying his religion. Because he seems to have been hemmed in by doubts and by fears. Now, to doubt does not necessarily mean that we have no faith. And in fact, I believe that if on occasion we have doubts, and those doubts are as it tested and proved, that can be a means of actually strengthening our faith in God. And so God, from time to time, uh, in his providential care and in his love for his children, he will send us trials, the trials of faith, the trials of this life. And those trials, amongst other things, are to demonstrate, are to stretch our faith and to strengthen our faith in God. So if you want a picture of this, forgive me if I've used it before, but here's a little simple picture of someone standing in the shallow end of a swimming pool and they're rather nervous and fearful and they're holding on to the side, they're gripping onto the side of the pool. And the teacher is urging them on, walk forward, leave the shallows behind, move into the deep end. And you see, the Lord wants his people to be deep people. Not to just be shallow in our understanding of the word and in teaching and in our understanding uh, and limited of God, but to be deep. Deep in terms of our knowledge of the scriptures. Deep in terms of our experiences of God. And so, occasionally... Friends, we're called to move out of our comfort zone, to let go of the side of the swimming pool and to walk forward, to take some steps forward toward the deep end. 
And so Thomas here is learning lessons, important lessons for him and for ourselves. The Lord is really teaching him, Thomas, you must learn to let go, to not be over anxious, to not be full of fear and uncertainty, but rather to exercise a strong faith in the triune God. Oh, that's easy talking when we're looking at Thomas, isn't it? But when we point these lessons at ourselves, apply them to ourselves, how do we receive them? Are we people who are sometimes a little fearful? We tend to be a little bit despondent very easily, become despondent in our daily walk with the Lord. And yes, if we're honest, sometimes we have doubts. And we have to work through those doubts by reading the word and meditating upon it, by discussing things maybe uh, with a very good Christian friend. But we need to let go and let God be in control of my life. Rather like these driverless cars that are coming through at the moment. I can't imagine them yet, but I can perhaps just imagine uh, for the sake of this illustration that I'm sitting in one of these cars and you know for quite a while, quite a number of times maybe, I still want to hold on to the steering wheel and use the gear stick and use the pedals because I want to be in control of driving this vehicle. And if we're honest, we all want to be in control of our lives. We want to write our own script. But no, the Lord writes the script for us. And after all, for our light affliction, if we are passing through any kind of trial, for our light affliction, writes the Apostle Paul, is but for a moment. It's working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we read at verses 19 and 20 of the first appearance of the risen Christ to his disciples. We've read of the second appearance of the risen Christ to his disciples plus Thomas. It's an action replay. It's exactly the same scenario when the risen Christ in his now glorified body that can, as it were, walk through doors and stand in the midst of his people and can announce peace to them, shalom, peace and blessing and welfare and happiness. And so it was an action replay the following Sunday evening for the benefit of Thomas. And we notice here then the demands of Thomas and the commands of Christ to Thomas. Look at, please, verse 25, part way through. Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, unless I put my finger into the print of the nails, unless I put my hand into his side, these are the demands of Thomas to Christ. But notice Christ's commands. Verse 27, the risen Lord said to Thomas, command number one, reach your finger here. Command number two, and look at my hands. Command number three, reach your hand here. Command number four, and put it into my side. And command number five, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. But we notice here the divine condescension 
of the risen Christ. Even when he's issuing those demands to his fearful and despondent follower. We see his condescension and we note his love and his gentleness to this disciple. You see, really, we're so easy to be unfair to Thomas. But have we not read earlier of Mary Magdalene's experience at verse 18? Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. On Easter Day evening, as we well know now, Christ came into the midst of those disciples and they had seen the Lord. Thomas had not seen as yet the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So the divine condescension, and that goes back into eternity, when in eternity God made his plans and his purposes for this world, and when he decided uh, that in his will and purpose he would send the second person of the blessed trinity, the eternal son, into this world, when the word became flesh, and that the son would be perfect righteousness and perfectly sinless and would make that offering up to God for sin. And so therefore the divine condescension in Christ permitting human creatures, those men with wicked hands, to make him a public spectacle and to nail his body to the cross of Calvary. That is divine condescension. And perhaps there's another lesson for you and I, friend, that if we notice one of our dear brothers or sisters, that they seem to be struggling, or they are bringing forward doubts, and they express them to us, or we work it out for ourselves, then this is how to handle them. To be gracious and kind and gentle and understanding. Because we all are full of human weaknesses. Who here can say that they are 100 grams or 100% true faith? Are there any of us who can say that there is not a few grams or a few percentages of doubt mingled with our faith? And so we see that the Lord is teaching lessons here to his disciple and indeed to all of his people. Thomas was a believer and yet he had things to learn, lessons to learn. And perhaps his abiding sin, besetting sin maybe, was of his character. That he was tended to be gloomy minded. Always expecting the worst and never expecting the good. And so the Lord is seeking to help this man to shake off this habit. It had become a part of his being. And to be in the future to be more willing to trust and to take God at his word. 
and act upon it. Not just full of good intentions, but actions as well in his daily experience. Reason or faith. Reason wants to remain within definite parameters in what is natural, in what is possible, in what is sensible. That's reason. And on that evening, Thomas was seeking to work with his reasoning. He was reasoning things out because he knew the facts. He knew that the Saviour had died on the Friday. He knew that the Saviour's body had been buried in a tomb. So Jesus Christ was dead and buried. But Thomas needed to move out of those parameters, out of the natural into the supernatural, out of what is common sense and what is possible into what is impossible and what has perhaps not ever happened before. And all the time, the Saviour is working on you and I, friend, and is endeavouring to teach us out of his word and to help us to shake off any habits that we may have uh, taken around with us and hold on to. And then we read at verse 28 these amazing words, this public confession of Thomas when he said to Christ, my Lord and my God. The words can be interpreted, thou art Lord and thou art God. But Thomas made it personal. My Lord and my God. Jesus did not bring any kind of reproof to Thomas's statement. Jesus didn't hit back and say, what are you talking about, Thomas? He accepted Thomas' confession of faith. He was demonstrating was Christ that, of course, he is indeed God, the eternal Son of God, co-equal with God. Thomas was obviously convinced, not only that Christ was now alive, but also convinced that it is possible for Christ to be omnipresent, to be present everywhere, that he is omniscient, that he is all-knowing and all-seeing. And this convinced him even more, even though he was a believer, but he was going deeper in terms of the attributes and perfections of Christ. He had a new understanding of them and a new appreciation of them. And these words of Thomas really are like a bookend in the Gospel of John. Because in the very beginning, in the very opening words of the Gospel of John, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning. And toward the end of the first, fourth gospel we read, someone is making this confession of faith, my Lord and my God. Reason or faith. That night, I believe that Thomas went home to his bed and he had a good night's sleep because he had been convinced. He had been convinced that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. 
and that Christ had been his helper and had helped him to move on in his faith and strengthen him in his faith. Reason or faith. The twelve and others who experienced those uh, sudden appearances of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, for them, seeing is believing. For Thomas, believing is seeing. 1 Peter verse 1 verse 8, Whom having not seen you love, though now you don't see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Having not seen, and yet we love him and we believe in him. But for the skeptic, or the rationalist, or the out-and-out atheist, they're being asked to believe something which is beyond reason, which is not really sensible, because it's outside those parameters of what is natural and sensible. And yet, in other areas of life, people are quite willing to take things on trust. So someone decides they're going to learn to be a scientist, and they go the first day for training to be a scientist, and they sit to lecture in front of lecturers, and they listen to teaching, and they take on trust what the lecturer is teaching them, even though they're at the very beginning of their work as a scientist. And in our daily experience, we exercise a natural faith. So I assume, tell me if I'm mistaken, that when you entered this room this evening and sat down on the chair you're currently sitting on, you didn't examine the chair and you didn't lift it up and pull at the legs to make sure they were secure. You exercised natural faith because you were convinced that the chair you're sitting on would hold your weight and would not collapse. And we do that all the time. Every day, almost every moment we make, movement we make, we're exercising natural faith. So Christianity is not saying you must refuse to use your mind and your intellect. We're not seeking you to follow just blind, unreasoning faith, but rather reasonable faith. Because that faith is based on the witness and testimony of people down the running centuries, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. That faith is based on God's revelation, the Bible, to human beings, revealing himself in all this glory and honor. Seems strange to me, I've never yet heard someone say, I will not believe in the theory of evolution unless I see, uh, unless I see Charles Darwin face to face. And so, seeing is believing, believing is seeing. Well, of course, we cannot see Jesus Christ in indescribable agony upon Calvary's tree. We cannot see his body laid in that tomb 2,000 years ago. We cannot see Jesus Christ in his glorified body as risen until he ascends to heaven. 
But we can read of the testimony of millions of people across the years of history who have testified to the existence of God and the existence of a man called Jesus of Nazareth who is the eternal Son of God. Reason or faith, doubts and fears, unbelief, unbelief won't believe. Unbelief wishes, like Thomas, to set conditions. I, unless I see, I will not believe. Unless I see this, unless I see that, I will not believe. God's estimate of human beings then is that for each one of us we have broken his holy law. We have broken his commands and his statutes and his precepts. We read in the book of Romans that there are none righteous, no, not one. And it goes on to say that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and therefore are under God's judgment. And there's no escape from that judgment, humanly speaking. The only way of escape is via Christ. With the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, all that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, which is from God through faith. The only, way, the only means of escape is via someone to rescue you. And the only person who can rescue you from the guilt and power of sin is Christ, the eternal Savior, the perfect Savior, the wonderful Savior, because he kept the law fully. And because he has become the substitute of those who believe on him. You see, the unbeliever needs to take action. There's only one thing that will keep someone out of heaven. And that is unbelief. Unbelief will keep people out of heaven. Heaven is for believers, for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I preface what I'm going to say now with a warning. This is an only an illustration. But let's just take, for instance, that we were informed that this building was going to collapse in three minutes. Would you believe that statement and that warning? And would you take action immediately? And that's what we're setting before the unbeliever. If we're in conversation with them, if we have opportunity to witness to them, we're saying to them, you're under God's judgment. Something awful, it will happen to you a, a moment in the future. You need to take immediate action. And that action is to believe. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To ask him to give you gifts of repentance and faith. Verse 30. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Reason then finds obstacles 
to salvation because reason is so limited in its thinking. You could say it's not very imaginative because it's, it's hemmed in by those parameters of common sense and what is possible and what is natural. But faith leads to the larger life, the abundant life. Faith steps out of the parameters and believes what is impossible and what is not natural and what is not common sense. But faith leads to peace and blessing and joy and life eternal. Amen.